Let's turn to Hebrews 9, please. That was splendid. Every week I have a different adjective. This is phenomenal this week, so. Actually, we're going to deal with something I do really frequently sometimes when we teach a book like Revelation. We called it Rev the Book, and we would do messages called Rev the Book in Toto, where the whole book is considered in a single sweeping kind of revelation. And we're going to consider Hebrews in Toto today, but aim small a little bit in Hebrews 9 as well. There was in around 1095 AD, a famous work was written by a man named Anselm of Canterbury. And he put some finishing touches on it in about 1100 AD. And it was called Cur Deus Homo. Why God became man in Latin. Cur Deus Homo. Why God became man. And the question implicit in this verse is answered by Hebrews in toto in its totality. Why God became man. The implicit question, why did God become man? Hebrews, in its totality, uniquely addresses that question implied there. And on Wednesday, in increment 302, we are in 303 now if we see Jesus, we considered John chapter 5, verses 25 to 30, in some detail with respect to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the single outcome of judgment. We considered that all human beings have done evil and none has done good. So there's some interesting twists to when Jesus said, some shall be raised out of their graves and out of death to a judgment to judgment, others to life. Those that have done the evil, they will be raised to judgment. Those that have done the good, raised to life. The problem inherent in that passage is that there are none that do good. And all have done evil. And the only doer of good is Jesus Christ, and he certainly rose to life. And the only doers of evil is all mankind and Adam who ri rise to judgment. But the judgment is a judgment of justification. God is the judge of all. And I'm going to keep referring to this fact because it's really the most significant reason why God became man. God became man so that the judge of all could be judged in behalf of all, judged for all. And so there's another Latin phrase, pro nobis. We've looked at that before, pro nobis, for us, for us. God became man for us, for us, 
meaning for the world of humanity, the world of humankind. So we considered that all human beings have done evil and none has done good. And so the resurrection of those who have done evil and those who have done good is to a single outcome of both justification and life. Both of those come into play in Romans 5.18 in one of the most phenomenal verses in which it says that he, the one man, Jesus Christ, the God who became man, by his ultimate one righteous act, his ultimate doing of the good, resulted in the justification and life for all humanity, all who had sinned, all who were incapable of good, all who had done evil. So a resurrection of judgment for the evildoers and of life for doers of the good is one resurrection of all to justification and life. Of course, we have to take this further. We always do. Whenever I think I've nailed something in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, you know, you've got to take this further. You know, there's something beyond. There's always something beyond. Jesus Christ took the place of the doers of evil and is the only doer of the good that satisfies God. And so in his cross and in his death, in the giving of his life to death, he, the Son of Man, to whom all judgment was entrusted by God the Father, took our place as the judged and was judged in our place. He took our place as evildoers and was judged in our place. He did the good in our place also, something we were incapable of doing. Part of his being judged in our place is that he acted justly in our place. And this is the reason why the new covenant in his blood includes the fact that the laws of God are written upon our hearts and upon our minds and the doer of the law was Jesus Christ in our behalf. He not only took our place as judge, he took our place as the judged. He was judged in our place and he acted justly in our place. He did the good in our place, who are incapable of the good, in the place of us, we who are incapable of good. In his death for all, we all died. In the pouring out of his blood, our wicked blood was poured out. Our old man was consumed and disappeared which is the meaning of the whole burnt offering, the Holocaust. In the Holocaust, our old man perished. In his death was brought about the only possibility of satisfaction to God by which the world was reconciled to him. In his death for all, we all died. And in his resurrection to life and justification, we all rose 
to the judgment of justification and the gift of life. It's all about Jesus Christ. And therefore, it's about a single outcome of life and justification for all, explicitly stated in Romans 5.18. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because the judge judged in our place is saying exactly the same thing that Hebrews says about the priest representing us by his once and for all sacrifice for sins. So taking this same tack for Hebrews, nothing has been more helpful to me in this current study called Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus, than a 10 or 11 page section of Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics. And that 10 or 11 pages I'm speaking of is from Church Dogmatics, volume 4.1, pages 273 to 283. I'm reading it for the third or fourth time. I read it, I write it, I read it, I read it again. In that section in which he was dealing generally with the crucial subject of Jesus Christ and indeed of God in Jesus Christ as judge, the judge as the judged. Having made the point that this reality is primarily considered in judicial terms, he then shows the epistle to the Hebrews and he writes for 10 pages uniquely on Hebrews to be the extraordinary and singular instance of saying exactly the same thing in cultic terms. And we know cultic, we mean by that the Levitical cultus under the Mosaic law, the sacrifices and the system of sacrifices and the language and the terminology that was very close to the early writers of the New Testament and therefore understandable to them. Now this occurred in a wave of doctrine dealing with the general concept of pro nobis, God for us. That is what Jesus Christ did for us and the world. You always remember that what he did for you and he did for us, the New Covenant community, he did for the world. Cur Deus Homo, why God became man. Interestingly, when Pilate saw Jesus and presented him, he said, behold the man, ecce homo, behold the man in Latin. Behold the man, the son of man. Now you're very familiar with the famous Thesis 17 because why God became man, cur Deus homo, was answered succinctly and then explained in detail by Bernard Lonergan who those two men probably have had the most profound influence on me as theologians, Lonergan and now Bart. Because he wrote, this is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, 
and was raised again. Because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power. We could say through violence, through condemnation, through judgments. But to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. Bart, B-A-R-T-H, summed up his answer to the question implied in Cur Deus Homo in judicial terms. He described the principle of pronobis, and this really sums up volumes of writing by him. The question is asked, did he really need 10,000 pages to express his dogmatics? The answer is absolutely. Every sentence is essential. He was carried by the Holy Spirit throughout. He summed up his answer to the question implied why God became man in judicial terms with four related answers. It's really one answer, but it's a fourfold answer. One, he took our place as judge. Two, he took our place as the judged. Three, he was judged in our place. Four, he acted justly in our place. In short, therefore, God became man pro nobis for us. Now, with a view to our own history and to Telestai, consider what Bart said about this one group of New Testament concepts and terms which stands apart from groups of concepts and terms like financial and military. In other words, he says, and I agree with him, the best way to describe why God became man has to be in judicial terms. The judge becomes the judged for us. This is profound in Hebrews because in Hebrews 12, 23, God is called the judge of all. And therefore, God who justifies. Now you say, God is judge. Yes, and as judge, he only justifies. He condemned the old man. He justifies humanity. He's called the God who justifies. Who is he who condemns, therefore? It is God who justifies. That's Romans 8.33. And in case you're wondering, in Romans 4.5, he says, God justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. Just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans 5.6. And whether people recognize it or not, because we live in a day of great self-glorification, perhaps more than any other time in history. We're all ungodly. We were all unjust. He died, the just one, for all the unjust, and that's all of us. And so God justifies the unjust because of the just one who is the judge who became the judged in our place.
So the best way to make that systematic in a theology is to approach it from that judicial standpoint. There are other standpoints and other means of terminology that are used in the New Testament. There's financial or monetary where a price is paid to secure redemption or ransom. There's even military where in Luke 11, the strong man is overcome by the stronger man. And these are all wonderful illustrations and analogies, but there's only one in the New Testament that comes up to the judicial and perhaps has the same equal power and punch systematically, and that's the cultic, which is exclusively in Hebrews. Hebrews as an epistle, Hebrews as a homily, is completely, almost completely, dominated by the cultic terminology. And Romans is almost completely dominated by the judicial. So there's a wonderful correlation or a wonderful blending we can have between Romans and Hebrews. But it goes even further than that. Regarding the group called cultic, that's C-U-L-T-I-C, he wrote, one important New Testament writing, the epistle to the Hebrews, is also almost completely dominated by it. And then he says, but it is obviously presupposed, this cultic terminology, presupposed and expressly used in Paul and in the Johannine writings. Now I can read that and breeze by that, and I did, and then I reread it, and then the third time I, it struck me, and I said, wait a minute, that's how we came to Hebrews, through Paul and the Johannine writings back further than that. Now we can find this cultic terminology also in 1 Peter, but I'm going to deal with how it's found in Paul and the Johannine writings. That's John's Gospel, John's Apocalypse, and the first epistle of John especially. So imagine my fascination in reading this, given that we've come to our most recent study of Hebrews precisely by way of studies in the Johannine writings, and more recently, Paul better call Paul, and especially Romans, reading Romans with the light on, where we find the most explicit judicial terms, but also cultic terminology, perhaps most clearly in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. This I picked up my translation from when I did a Targum Romans translation. Romans 3, 23 to 25 reads like this, For all sin... That's all are under the power of sin and complicit with it and fall hopelessly short of the glory of God, which is what God intended for man. And all, verse 24, are justified unconditionally by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And verse 25 is where he gets explicitly cultic whom God displayed publicly as the place of expiation. The place of expiation. We've seen that before in the earthly tent in Hebrews 9.5. But now in the heavenly, it's Jesus Christ himself. The place of expiation is the word hilasterion. Hilasterion. There's a word that's related to it called hilasmos 
which is used in 1 John 2.1 and 1 John 4.10, whom God displayed, speaking of Jesus Christ, as publicly as the place of expiation through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood. Jesus' sacrificial death or the giving of his life to death is often the meaning of his blood. Now we've seen, we're going to see some other things about his blood and I'm even going to try to make almost a very difficult and dangerous distinction. Dangerous because you can't go wrong in this. Between the poured out blood and the sprinkled blood. The blood poured out is one dynamic. The blood sprinkled or manipulated by the priest or maneuvered by the priest is another. The sprinkling. You have come to the judge of all, God the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better things than that of Abel. And there's a case to be made, the blood that Abel sprinkled from the sacrifice of the flock that he made. Or is there a double entendre there, Abel's own blood also? I think there's a double entendre, double meaning, but we're going to, we have a little time before we get there maybe. And so, Hilasterion, the place of expiation, through the faithfulness, meaning Jesus Christ's faithfulness, not yours, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that climaxed with his blood, his sacrificial death, or the giving of his life to death. So Paul does use cultic terms, cultic terminology, to describe Jesus Christ's death. But also notably, and I think maybe even more notably in Ephesians 5.2, because there the scripture says, and keep walking in love. Now speaking of love, and I'm going to speak about love a little bit today. Pastor Brown is going to be speaking about love next week at 11 o'clock, September 10th, in Vermont Baptist Church in New Kensington. Now you say, that competes with your time. No, it doesn't. In fact, I would say, Go here, Pastor Craig. You can always get the, I still say tape, even though tape. So if, forgive me for that. I'm a, if you look up the word taper in the dictionary, T-A-P-I-R, that's exactly a likeness of me. So you'll, you'll understand why I say tapes. So you can always get the MP3. You can always, and if you're a masochist, you can even watch the video. Now, so Pastor Brown will be speaking on the unheard of love of God, five points on it. Is that correct, Pastor Brown? You and I have the same roots. He was ordained in Vermont Baptist, and I grew up in Vermont after being born in New York State. Hoosick Falls, also known as Whiskey Falls. Because the greatest thing that happened in Hoosick Falls is whiskey and many taverns and bars. So that's at 11 o'clock, Vermont Baptist, 
Can people Google that to find out how to get there, Pastor Brown? Yeah. So if you want to go there, go there. So you say, what if nobody comes? Well, I'm used to doing just me and, me and Michael be here. Yeah. You're, you, but you're going to go to Craig's too probably, right? Oh, that's all right. Ephesians 5.2, and keep walking in love. Keep walking in love. Just as also the Messiah loved us with that kind of love and handed himself over for us. Latin would be pro nobis. An offering, now we're getting some more key words here. An offering is prosphora. P-R-O-S-P-H-O-R-A. An offering, prosphora, and a sacrifice. He multiplies these words, thusia. An offering and a sacrifice. See how these words are stacking up? This is what we call cultic terminology. It's not judicial, it's cultic. And Hebrews is dominated by the cultic but it's equated with the judicial. In other words, Hebrews is saying what Romans is saying, but in cultic terms instead of judicial terms. Now, you can use monetary terms, but it won't get systematic. It won't take you all the way. You can use the financial analogy of the payment of the price, etc., and it won't take you all the way. You can use the Christus Victor, which a lot of modern theologians like to do because they hate talking about penal substitution so much so that it's almost mildly nauseating that they want to avoid the bloody part of redemption but they talk about Christus Victor and it's true it can be portrayed as a military victory over evil in the resurrection but nothing takes it all the way like cultic language. Nothing takes it all the way systematically like judicial language. And so the cultic language used in 5.2 is phenomenal. Keep walking in Ephesians 5.2 in love just as the, the Christ, literally, or the Messiah, loved us and handed himself over for us, an offering and a sacrifice. Prosphora which is used in Hebrews 10.5, 10.8, 10.10, 10.14, and 10.18, also, same word. And a sacrifice, thusia, used not only elsewhere in Paul, Philippians 2.17 and 4.18, but in Hebrews 5, 1.7.27, 8.3, 9.9, 9.23, 9.26, 10.1, 10.5, 10.8, 10.11, 10.12, 10, 26, 11, 4, 13, 15, and 16. So you see there is a presupposition of this cultic language in Paul. And it says again, so this is my translation. Keep walking in love just as also the Messiah loved us and handed himself over for us, pronobus, and offering a sacrifice and a sacrifice of the fragrant kind. That means the kind that reached God with a pleasing, satisfactory notes with pleasing satisfaction. Well, as far as John's gospel goes, we've recently considered the urgent emergence of blood and water from the pierced side of Jesus on the cross. I call that the urgent emergence of blood 
and water. John 19.34, which evoked and presented evidence for the death of the testator in the Hebrews 9.15 to 18 analogy. The blood also that makes effective the new covenant and blood and water together as purifying agents. Now you are clean through the word which I've spoken to you. The water of the word cleanses. How much more shall the blood of Christ purify the conscience, the consciousness of sins? The pouring out of the blood makes effective a new covenant. The sprinkling of the blood makes effective the purification of consciousness from the evil of guilt. To be purified from all unrighteousness in the great so-called rebound verse of 1 John 1.9 is to be purified from the unrighteousness, the adikia, which is guilt itself. God doesn't leave us with the forgiveness of sins, he allows us to experience hemardiological amnesia, something he suffers from. God is omnipotent. And it took all of his power to forget something. We say, I can't forget. There are things we can't forget in our memories, lodged in our memory. But there's things that we can forget in as much as they do not affect us any longer. They do not present to us a PTSD anymore. They've lost their power to torment those memories. And that's what I'm going to be calling homardiological amnesia. God can in his omniscience, forget. It takes all his omnipotence for him to forget. And he has exerted all his omnipotence, both in raising Jesus from the dead and in forgetting your sins. With all my might, God says, I have forgotten your sins. With all my power, I have forgotten your sins. It's another thing we can't do, but God can do. We can't forget, but God does forget. It takes all his omnipotence to forget. It took all his omnipotence to raise Jesus from the dead, and with Christ, he raised us. Blood and water emerging from the side, the pierced side of Yahweh, Yeshua. Hebrews 9.14 and 9.19. We also considered the astonishing connection with the Passover lamb in John 19.36, which Brian has been dealing so masterfully with in scores of messages and will continue. The Passover lamb in John 19.36, which also formed an inclusio with John 1.29 and John the Immerser's inspired exclamation, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the world. 
God became man to be the lamb to take away our sin. It goes without saying that the center of John's apocalypse is the slaughtered but standing lamb. And that all that is portrayed in the book of Revelation is the circumference of that center. Revelation cannot be understood. And it can only be the focus of morbid curiosities and false doctrines unless it is seen as the circumference of the center which is the slaughtered lamb and the raised lamb of God. So John's apocalypse is the slaughtered but standing lamb and all that's portrayed in that book is the circumference of that center. Paul also declares in the midst of dealing with a very delicate situation in Corinth, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been killed. You think right in the midst of someone, he's dealing with a problem of immorality in the church. A shocking, it even shocks the Gentiles that a man would live with the wife of his father in, in sexual immorality. That's a, that's a tough, you say that's Christians? Come on, yeah. What are Christians capable of? Just about anything. That's why there's the sprinkled blood. So right in the midst of it, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been killed. What kind of man thinks about stuff like that in the midst of such a delicate situation? Paul? Probably a lot of you, too. There's never a time when thinking about Christ, our Passover lamb, being slaughtered isn't appropriate to think about. You see all the terrible trends in news reporting. And so you back up a little bit and say, Christ, our Passover lamb has been slaughtered. <laughs> That's more important, more important. I don't know how some of you start the day with news or looking at your phone. If I don't start with the word, I'm nuts for the rest of the day. I'm, I'm done, I'm useless. So I do spend. Start the day with Christ and the word. The Passover lamb, Topaska, used not only there but in John 2.13, as if bringing us up to the climax of John 19.30 to 36. John 2.13, 23, 6, 4, 11, 55, used twice, 12, 1, 13, 1, 18, 28, 18, 39, 19, 14, Ta Pascha, the Passover, Hebrews 11, 28. In John, 1 John, we haven't taught formerly or formally as of late, 1 John, the presbyteros, or the elder, is patently cultic in his terminology. He's plainly cultic. In 1 John 1, 7, if we walk, speaking of walking, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, the very blood of Jesus is a cultic term because it refers always to the blood of the lambs of the blood of the sacrifices offered in the Levitical cultus. The blood of Jesus, his son, keeps purifying us. Katharidze, another term used frequently in Hebrews, from all sin. Now, how to understand this? If he made purification for sins and then sat down in Hebrews 1.3, and he did, then what does this mean? He keeps purifying us from sins. Well, that's the difference between the poured out blood and the sprinkled blood. And that's the difference between God not just leaving us here with the judicial forgiveness of sins, but making a provision for us to forget our sins and not even to be in any way enslaved to the effect of those sins or the guilt, the evil of guilt. Sometimes a person can't meet your eyes when you're talking to them because they're bashful or they're shy or they're not used to doing that. And sometimes it's just because they're guilty. They don't hate you. They're guilty about something. And so they veil their own eyes from you. Lots of times you try to get a teenager to look you in the eye and talk, and they won't. And it's not just because they're bashful, it's because they've done something they're guilty for very recently. And so they're like, eh, eh, eh. we all need grace. Walking in the light as he, God, is in the light means, among other things, that we don't deny the fact of our post-regeneration sinfulness. And our post-regeneration need. Walking in the light is walking in the truth. Walking in the light is acknowledging the truth. It's acknowledging reality rather than being divorced from it. Walking in the light as he is in the light. In his light, we see light. Light is shed broad everywhere when we walk in the light. Walking in the light as he, God, is in the light means, among other things, that we don't deny the fact of our post-regeneration sinfulness and that when we sin and know that we have sinned, we do acknowledge our sins. At which time, God is always faithful and just to release us from the effect of those sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness, adikia. It's a very important word there. It's not just wrongdoing. It's the essential guilt that we have about sins that we commit after we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So this is speaking in 1 John 1.9. In 1 John 5.17 clears that up. It says, all unrighteousness is sin. Adikia. All unrighteousness is sin. Including guilt. So this is speaking of the purifying effect of Jesus' sprinkled blood on our consciousness. 
Hebrews 9.14, which in Hebrews 12.24, that sprinkled blood speaks better things than that of Abel. And again, in 1 John 2.1-2, if anyone sins, let him know that he has an advocate. He may have many accusers, but he has an advocate in Jesus Christ. Parakletos, same word used for the Holy Spirit as our advocate. If anyone sins, let him know that he has an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The righteous, what? The righteous one. Who is the propitiation, helasmos, for our sins and not for our sins only but for the sins of the whole world. Cur Deus Homo, why God became man, pro nobis, and nobis is us, the world. I still say 2 Corinthians 5.19 is the definitive New Testament statement. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You don't get any more profound, any more sweeping. You don't get any more of understanding of the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of God than right there. John makes an implicit distinction between the poured out blood of Jesus, it's implicit, God's Son, through which the forgiveness of sins and eternal redemption was obtained for all the world. And he distinguishes that from the sprinkled blood of Jesus, his Son, which is required to cancel sins in their effect, to restore a person to fellowship with the Father and the Son, to experience the joy of his salvation, and to have untethered fellowship with one another in the New Covenant community, which in turn is related to the purification of the consciousness of sins. No further offering for sin is required. In fact, nor is one even possible. Hebrews 10.18, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. So what's penance? Nothing. Nothing. What are works that we do to try to assuage the evil of the guilt of our conscience? Dead works. Works of the dead man, the old man, the immolated man, the man consumed in the death of Jesus. The reason none of the holocausts of the Old Testament could satisfy God ultimately is because only the holocaust of Jesus Christ caused the old man to disappear and not just a lamb from a flock. So the once and for all offering and forever offering of Christ is sufficient. It's always efficient, efficient and sufficient. Confession of sin results in the practical purification of all unrighteousness, the purgation of the conscience from dead works and self-condemnation by the blood of Jesus God's Son, not by blood from an additional sacrifice of animals or of human works, 
So he's dealing here with the cancellation even of the feeling of condemnation in the heart. You ever have that? Kills your potential for life, for living, for happiness, for everything. The feeling of guilt in the heart. As 1 John 3, 20 to 21 says, whenever our heart condemns us, now that's something you feel when your heart condemns you, you feel it. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. Peter said exactly the same words to Jesus when Jesus said, do you love me? He said, you know everything, meaning obviously you're God. But John goes on to say, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. Loved ones, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. Parisia, also used in Hebrews 3, 6, 10, 19, 10, 35. Confidence before God. That means we have confidence that our sins are forgiven and our guilt is purged. We have been released from the very effect of sin, which is the penalty of guilt and the fear that causes torment of punishment, the fear of punishment. Now that's, we could call that a revisitation of rebound if you want, but that's not what I'm calling it. The faithfulness of God to cancel the effect of our sins when we confess our sins which means to walk in the light as he's in the light, doesn't mean that he has to give his son again. Or that Jesus has to give his life to death again. Not at all. It means, as the saying goes, confession is good for the soul. That's not a Bible statement. But it does say confess your faults one to another in, first, in James 5.16. And it's related to healing. The prayer of faith shall save the sick also means, in that context, the confession of sins heals the soul also. It's good for the soul. We don't have to do it in front of a congregation. We do it in front of God. And so it means that when we confess our sins, the sprinkled blood of Jesus is the purifying agent that removes self-condemnation or guilt from our heart. God is just to forgive or justified in forgiving is another way we would say it. God is justified in forgiving our sins. The word forgiveness there, doesn't, it, it's aphesis also, but it means to release us from the burden of the recall of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness means that because Jesus was the judge who was judged in our place God is just to grant us subjective forgiveness and that means that he X's out the unrighteous guilt we feel about our sins by the manipulation of the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ on our conscience in other words he grants us homardiological amnesia from which God himself suffers.
excuse me, but are you God? Yes, I am. Are you suffering from something? Yes. What is it? I have amnesia about your sins. In fact, he wouldn't say amnesia about your sins because he's forgot your sins so much that he forgot that you have sins. So imagine how he sees you. So we will return to the distinction of consciousness, the differentiation of consciousness, the DOC, not Department of Corrections, although it is a Department of Correction, between the poured out and the sprinkled blood before too long. It's a touchy area. It's a touchy distinction. It's the same blood of Jesus in Hebrews 10.19, the same blood of Christ, the unblemished lamb in Hebrews 9.14, but it has two distinct functional benefits. Now, in any case, in the heart of John's anatomy of love, the elder says this in 1 John 4, 9, in this, the love of God was revealed. Phanerao, same word used in Hebrews 9, 26. He was once revealed at the termini of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, 26. That word phanerao is used. In this, the love of God was revealed or manifested in fullness to us. God sent his only eternally begotten son into the world that we would live through him. Cur Deus homo, why God became man, that we would live through him, live with his life. In this is love. Now, this is a shocker. Or it's, it's a punch. In this is love. In other words, you can't think about love apart from this, he says in 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation slash expiation. Both are in that. Helasmos for our sins. Sometimes you read things and they stick in your craw in a bad way and you go, I, don't, I, I love this book, but I don't like what this guy said here. Seslos Speak, S-P-I-C-Q, Seslos Speak did a commentary on Romans, or I mean on Hebrews, a famous one, and you can't find it in English hardly anywhere, and it's only in French. I've decided someday maybe to read it in French, but I'd have to be on a desert island or something to do that, but... Sesla Speak also did a multi-volume study of agape in the New Testament, every use of agape love in the New Testament. And he did a marvelous job in the Synoptic Gospels, in the Epistles, in the Book of Revelation, in the Johannine writings, in Pauline writings. Then he got to Hebrews and he said, love is only mentioned twice, agape is only twice in Hebrews, and it is. In 6.10 and then in 10.24, and he said, and that makes sense because he said Hebrews is a very harsh and judgmental in tone epistle. That stuck in my craw. That was like an earworm where you're singing a song and you hate the song. Every jingle that comes on every commercial is an earworm. I hate almost. They've killed so many rock songs. Oh, 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 Zempic, what? 
That's not what that, you killed a Holly song, you idiots. You've destroyed another rock classic. So you have to, they stick in your cry. You want to get rid of them. And if I hear that don't worry song again and see these people at this resort somewhere, I might shoot the television, but I'm not sure. Maybe just with a pellet gun. Well, no, maybe just with a squirt gun because I don't want to kill my television. But anyways, giving you time to think through this. In his otherwise very excellent study of agape in the New Testament, he suggested that its limited use in Hebrews is in keeping with the rather harsh and judgmental tone of the epistle. But on the contrary, I say, the predominant notion of the self giving of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to put away sin has to do with love. Herein is love that he gave himself, that God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is love. So Hebrews talks all about that throughout, and though it doesn't mention the word agape, but only twice, the whole thing is about agape, because you can't understand agape love without this propitiatory act, the sending of the Son to be the propitiation for our sins, which is the same as saying the judge being judged in our place. Cur Deus homo, why God became man, to be judged for us, to be the judge judged for us, to be the priest who represents us, says exactly the same thing. So I don't think a man understands Hebrews if he can say that. The predominant notion of the giving of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, to put away sin has to do precisely with love, with in fact the burning love of God that made Jesus Christ the whole burnt offering, the holocaust in which the old man in all of us perished and was disappeared. God who is love, in 1 John 4, 8, is the God who is a consuming fire, in Hebrews 12, 29. As we've often averred, there's no contradiction between those two scriptural declarations. God is love, and our God is a consuming fire. All the fire in Hebrews is the fire of God's love. The whole document is consumed by love. The love of God who willingly became in Christ the whole burnt offering that provided the only satisfaction in bringing about the reconciliation of the world to himself. So the two mere occasions of the word agape in Hebrews does not mean by any stretch that this homily is not steeped in love, replete with God's love, overflowing with the love of God in Christ Jesus from which we and indeed from which the whole world cannot be separated. It's not a mistake that Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire, is followed immediately without a chapter division into 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Our God is a consuming fire, let brotherly love continue. Philadelphia.
So the love of God in Christ Jesus is as much in evidence in Hebrews as it is in the statements in Romans that God demonstrated his love in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. And in Galatians 2.20, where it says that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Was this love not the driving force in Christ when, as Hebrews puts it in 9.26, Christ appeared once at the termini of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice, thusia, of himself? Now, move to a close. In speaking of cultic language so predominant in Hebrews, Bart goes on to say, might it not be that the most primitive Christianity, because of its great nearness to the Old Testament, partly in agreement with it and partly in opposition to it, did in fact think and speak far more in the images and categories of this group, meaning the cultic group of term terms, than we can detect from the New Testament? It occurs again and again in unmistakable allusions. For example, that Jesus Christ who gave himself for us is called the Lamb of God and the giving of his life is referred to as his blood. The intent, therefore, and I'm speaking of Hebrews in toto here, of the enfolded argument from the beginning of Hebrews was unfolded. There's an argument enfolded, there's an argument unfolded. The unfolded argument from the beginning of Hebrews was unfolded by the teaching shepherd, declaring and demonstrating from the scriptures the superiority of the definitive word spoken by God in a son and its superiority over the provisional word that God spoke in the prophets. The superiority of the son over angels, of his name, Jesus, over any name given to angels, of his honor over Moses, of his priesthood over Aaron's, of the covenant which Jesus mediates as better than the covenant at Sinai. The PT continues here in Hebrews 9 to show the superiority of the sacrifices, the one sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah over all the sacrifices offered under the first covenant, which at the time of the writing of Hebrews was still being practiced. That Levitical cultus was still being practiced. And that sets up a temptation for the Hebrews to return to it because they did not understand the manipulation of the blood of sprinkling and the purification of the consciousness that's an additional benefit of Christ's death. Christ's death and Christ's self-sacrifice. And so they lived in this great overlap of the ages. And we live in this great time in between, between this alteration of the situation of mankind affected by reconciliation and the alteration of the condition of mankind affected by resurrection in the future. And in between, we have the great opportunity for transformation by the renewing of our mind, by the purification of our conscience, and by brotherly love continuing. Let brotherly love continue is more profound than meets the eye because 
Jesus considers us his brothers, his siblings. In Hebrews 2.11. Remember Levi, the ancestor of Aaron, who was in the loins of Abraham when he tithed to the mystery man Melchizedek, an anticipatory type of Jesus. And when this Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, who is also a priest of Salem, which means peace, blessed Abraham with Levi still in Abraham's loins, meaning that Melchizedek and he whom he foreshadows is superior to the one he blesses, Levi and the Levitical cultists in the loins of Abraham. The word of God in Hebrews 4.12, spoken in a son in these last days, in Hebrews 1.2, in this great overlap of the ages and now the time in between. The word of God spoken in a son is superior to the word that he spoke through the prophet Moses, which gave explicit instructions for animal sacrifices and how to maneuver the blood of those sacrifices not to show what God ultimately desired in these animal sacrifices, that these animal sacrifices were sufficient, but to foreshadow what he ultimately desired to finally take away sins and to purify the consciousness of sins completely. When God looked at all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, he said, I can't get no satisfaction. Hebrews 9, let's look there as we close then. Hebrews 9, 13. He did get satisfaction in his son's self-giving. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled rantizomai, rantizuso, those who were defiled, sanctifies to the purification of the flesh, that means the whole person, including the consciousness, incidentally, and it surely does, then how much more will the blood, sprinkled blood of Christ, with which he entered the Holy of Holies, and I'm giving bracketed commentary, not of this earthly creation, who offered himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit, purify the consciousness from dead works, to serve, that is, so that the whole sprinkled person can serve the living God. So you got to ask yourselves this question. So do I. How much more? you got to ask yourself this question. The question posed rhetorically in Hebrews 9.14 Notice that sprinkled blood is associated in both sides of this comparison contrast with purification of the consciousness. In other words, what he's saying is the Old Testament blood of animals did serve to temporarily but partially purify the consciousness from dead works, purified the mind and the soul from guilt. But you want to go back there because of that? When the blood of Christ, not partially but completely, not temporarily but perpetually purifies your conscience from dead works. 
You know what he did? He closed the last possible door for them to return to Judaism. Right there. And slammed it. We've got to ask ourselves the same question. Because the sprinkled blood is associated with purification of our consciousness, not with salvation or justification per se, though this purification is definitely a practical aspect of salvation. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Poured out, in fact, Jesus said, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. But then the scripture says, he arose from the dead, God led him up from the realm of the dead with the blood of the everlasting covenant, and that he entered heaven itself, the holy place of all, with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And we have come to that sprinkled blood, which purifies the consciousness from the very feelings of guilt and the torment and dread of punishment. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the blood of Christ is associated with and is even the means of propitiation, as we saw in Romans 3.25. It's even the means of justification in Romans 5.9. Being justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from wrath? The blood, in, by extension, speaks of salvation from wrath, which in turn suggests the action of propitiation. But here in Hebrews, the blood of Christ is associated with purification and thus with sanctification. When the blood of Christ is said to be poured out in Matthew 26, 28, and we're going to give more attention to this down the road, or up the road. When it's said to be poured out in Matthew 26, 28 and elsewhere, it's declared to be that which gives effect to the new covenant. Moreover, it is said to be poured out for many for the forgiveness Aphesis of sins, A-P-H-E-S-I-S, where the word aphiemi comes from in 1 John 1.9, forgiveness. For many for the forgiveness of sins means for all for the forgiveness of sins because in 1 Timothy 2.6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. The blood of Jesus is understood to be dynamically and effectively equivalent with his death or with his life given over to death the death of the testator in Hebrews 9, 15 to 18. When the blood is sprinkled, that is in heaven, it is said to be for purification of the consciousness and for the subsequent assurance of believers in connection with homardiological amnesia, the forgetfulness of their own sins and sinfulness, which is grounded in turn in God's omnipotent forgetfulness of our sins. To get God to remember your sins, you'd have to out-arm wrestle omnipotence. For God exercises his omnipotence in the forgetfulness of your sins. That may never have been said today, except here. Who knows? I don't know. 
God exercises his omnipotence in the forgetfulness of sins as he exerted his omnipotence in leading up our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant and raised us up with him. Amen.